This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. The autumn stars are starting to twinkle as the month of February heralds in some big name races. Saturday the 8th is at Warwick Farm, hosting the $2 million English Millennium for two-year-olds and the $1 million English Sprint for three-year-olds. Saturday the 15th at Royal Randwick features the Apollo Stakes and the Light Fingers, both at Group 2, supported by the Group 3 Southern Cross and Triscay Stakes. Then we go to Rose Hill Gardens on the 22nd for three features, the Hobartville, the Silver Slipper and the Millie Fox, all at Group 2. The February Spectacular winds up on the 29th with two Group 1s, the Chipping Norton and the Surround Stakes, plus the Guy Walter and the traditional Golden Slipper lead-ups, the Sweet Embrace and the Skyline Stakes at Group 2. Also during the month, the first of the Country Championship qualifiers will be run at Coffs Harbour, Nowra, Albury and Taree. Yet another amazing Sydney Autumn Carnival is up and running. Racing people are constantly making inquiries into the whereabouts and current activities of former popular Sydney jockey Danny Beasley. Well, I caught up with him last week. I had a long talk with him on the phone and caught up with all the news. Danny announced his retirement from race riding two and a half years ago after a career embracing 25 years, close to 2,000 winners and 18 Group 1s, six of them in Singapore. In fact, he spent the last decade of his riding life in Singapore where he rode around 500 winners. On quitting the saddle, he accepted an offer to become assistant trainer to another expatriate Aussie, Danny Ma, who is now one of Singapore's most respected trainers. Danny still jumps on two or three in track work most mornings and he enjoys going around in the odd barrier trial. His trademark friendliness is unchanged from the days of his original apprenticeship to Peter Marr at Wodonga in Victoria. He's the same affable bloke who was legged onto a horse called Power Street by trainer Donna McQueen at Corowa on the 2nd of January 1993. And Power Street was the horse to give young Beasley his magical, unforgettable first winning ride. That open handicap at Corowa launched a career that would take Danny Beasley to racing's biggest stage. He rode winners for some of the nation's most powerful stables and he won some of the nation's most famous races. Dan's up bright and early in Singapore to join us on the podcast. Great to catch up, Dan, been a long time. Yeah, certainly has, John, and thank you very much for those kind words, and um, it's uh, it's great to uh, be able to catch up with you. I uh, enjoy listening to your podcast, and um, I feel very humbled that uh, I'm your this week's guest. The pleasure is all mine, and yes, I was very pleased to hear that you and your boss, Danny Ma, are regular listeners to the podcast up there in Singapore. Yeah, many of the people up here in uh, the racing people in Singapore. Um, Definitely tune in and, uh, uh, yeah, very avid listeners of your podcast. Well, you'd know many of the people that we're interviewing too from your days in Sydney. Yeah, 100%, John. It's been great. Like, um, 
oh, it brings back a lot of memories listening to the interviews, and uh, you get it's they're, they're truly a credit to you, John. Like they're um, you, it's very entertaining, very uh, get a lot of laughs, and um, yeah, bring back a lot of memories. Thank you for your kind words, Dan. Well, you were still riding at the top of your game in 2017, and you certainly had no weight problems. What brought about your surprise decision to quit the saddle? Yeah, I always sort of thought, um, like getting to that later half, of the later back end of my career, that I would finish up sort of early 40s because I wanted to be able to give myself an opportunity or give myself time to make decisions to see what I would like to do in sort of the latter half of my life, whether that be a training or 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 something. But it would have always going to be in the racing because that's all I know and that's all I love. It's mm. it's what it just my whole life always has revolved around racing. So it was always going to be something like that. So um, I was getting, I was probably getting a bit unsettled the last say uh, year that I rode, and I was pretty much just riding with other thoughts in my head about um, just what I was going to do. So, uh, as I said, I was still going all right. I I won a Group One, but only about a month before Mm. I give up. But uh, I retired. I shouldn't say give up. I should Mm. retire. But um, yeah, I just didn't get the same kick out of it. Uh, that I that I should 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 have, and um, I was thinking, well, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons, and uh, yeah, mm. as you've always as I've always thought, I wanted to uh, give myself time and um, uh, time to think of what I would like to do. So um, mm. uh, Daniel's brother Chris was up here at the time, his assistant, being his assistant, and he had to go back to Melbourne, and so that opportunity come up, and I thought, well no time like the present and um, yeah just made the decision it was a bit of a quick decision um, well when I say that it was a, a quick decision but it was a, a well thought out decision and I went away for a month to make sure that I was quite happy with it and um, and I come back and said yeah radio so mm. I had a great lot of support from the Singapore Turf Club Turf Club that were great in particular the Chief Steward here at the time Peter Chadwick Mm. He uh, guided me right through the process, and he was terrific. And mm. um, it's uh, it's been good. It's been two and a half years, and it's um, it gave me plenty of I've learned a hell of a lot. It's been great getting back to the to just being really hands on with the horses. I've really enjoyed that part. Mm. And the next six months will be the time where I've just got to make some more firm decisions on what my next step and what my future will hold. Mm. Well, Danny Marr's got about 45 horses in work there and one-third of them are owned by one of Singapore's biggest owners, Lim Siar Mong. Now, Lim is actually his last name, but up there, last becomes first. I believe he he just loves his horses, Danny, and and loves racing, loves everything about the game. Yeah, he does. He's very, very passionate. Um, he he doesn't miss a meeting. He's at every meeting that's on, unless he's unless he's away on business. But um, yeah, he's nearly first at the races and last to leave. And he he's very passionate about his horses. He, he as everyone, he he very much enjoys winning. And um, he just when when he wins, he's always got a entourage with him. He loves to 
go to the races and bring his family, his, his brothers, his nephews, his cousins and friends. And um, he just really enjoys uh, being at the races, having his day out with his with his close friends and family and, and having success. And um, he's uh, he's got a lot of, lot of enjoyment out of racing. And um, thankfully for us and thankfully for the Singapore Turf Club, he still holds a very high level of enthusiasm for the game and um, he's mm. going to be around for a long time. Years ago, Mr Lim picked two infallible business initiatives from which he has accumulated great wealth, beer and cigarettes. His yeah, judgments right. were spot on. Yeah, well, uh, in, in in Asia, you probably couldn't get to uh, better businesses because... Um, it's quite quite ironic in that uh, you go back home to Australia and everything's about quit, quitting smoking and um, it's quite quite to be seen mm. as a real um, as something that you're not supposed to do these days. But in Asia, still a lot of people smoke. It's um, yeah. yeah, it's it's still a big business, and especially when you travel out to those other countries like Thailand and that. It seems to be mm. every second person walking along the street. Still smoke, so uh, smoking still a big business, and and then as you say, beer is uh, yeah in in Asia they're two very successful businesses. Well, in that Singapore humidity, I imagine dehydration and thirst would be would be regular <laughs> problems. Yeah, so a cold beer uh, definitely uh, is one of the chosen drinks of many up here for sure. Yeah. Well, Lim Siar Mong is supporting Danny Maher in a very big way. Last spring, he went to the ready-to-run sales on the Gold Coast and to Warwick Farm and purchased eight impressive two-year-olds which went straight into your stable. Yes, that's right. Yeah, no, really looking forward to um, for them to come along this year. Um, bought some really nice horses. Uh, got a lovely more than ready colt there, and a, and another better than ready colt, and they're showing good promise in there. Mm. Um, yeah, got a, a really nice Whittington horse and uh, a um, Dream Ahead and uh, Dissident colt. And yeah, there's like buy really nice horses, buy really nice stallions and really good types. So um, they're gonna they're gonna uh, give us a chance uh, next year. That's uh, this year. That's for sure. Mm. The legendary Mick Dittman also has a professional association with Lim C.R. Mong. What are Mick's duties? Yeah, Mick's his racing manager, and and that's pretty much it. He's he's Lim's right hand man, makes all the all the decisions uh, with the racing. Like Lim's a very very busy busy businessman, as you can imagine, running his businesses. Mm. And so he hasn't got time for the day in day out running off the horses. So he just likes to come to the races and 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 that's and see the horses race. But so he leaves everything else up to me, make the buy and the sell and the everyday uh, liaison with the owners and the jockeys and all, all that all the stuff as a as a normal owner sort of probably would would do Mick does all that and Mick's been with Mr Lim for many many years now they've very got a very very they've got a wonderful relationship and um, one thing about Mr Lim is if if he uh, once you get a good rapport with him he's extremely extremely loyal 
and um, he's a really wonderful man. And uh, yeah, you can see the, the close friendship and bond between Mick and Lim is is, is quite uh yeah, it's really uh, nice to see. Mm. I know you see Mick at uh, the track work sessions there in Singapore, and next time you spot him, Danny, just wander over. Uh, tell him that I'll be chasing him for a podcast in the very near future. Yeah, I certainly will. Yeah, I see Mick most days, and we've uh, yeah we've come quite close uh, myself and Mick over the last few years. We've like we work closely together and build up a good friendship too. And um, he's one of the great. Uh, well, he's like you talk to anyone um, mm. in, in Australian history. He's one of the best riders we've seen, and to be able to work with him. Um, and the knowledge that he's passed on to me, it really helped me over the last few years too and made me a better rider, I felt. felt. And um, now to be working with him in this capacity, it's just amazing some of the stories that he can tell you and some of the experiences he's told you of riding those great horses and working with um, all those great trainers, the Mm. Tommy Smiths and, yeah, the likes. And um, he's just... uh, He's quite amazing, Mick, the experiences and the, mm. the great horses and that he's, he's had the opportunity to deal with in his career. Now, take me through a normal day in the Danny Marr stable. How do you and Dan structure your day? What are your actual duties? You're still riding two or three work most mornings. Yeah, we're very hands-on and we, we share the responsibilities uh, quite quite uh, evenly. We... Um, we're both there at four thirty, open the doors and um and we we do all the feed preparation for the horses and um map out the track work and uh yeah, and then it's just the running of an of the normal everyday like stable in the morning. Um I'll stay back at the stables and and control the staff and, and the and the organisation of the horses and as you say, ride one or two mm. <coughs> or maybe a couple more on a on a busy morning. And Dan will follow the horses around and watch them work, and he's he's sort of like the eyes and make sure everything's going right, make sure the horses are all happy and working the right way, and and doing everything right. And then the morning normally finishes the track work. Morning would normally finish about nine thirty. Then we sit down and do either the vet work or the programming, and um, yeah, we just um, that's our morning's probably finished about ten thirty eleven, and. Go home for a few hours and then back at two and supposed to finish at four. But as you know, before this, John, there's always something. You very rarely get home at four. It's more closer till five, mm. sometimes six by the time you get everything done. So There is uh, always as something, as you say, always. Always something. Yeah, always something. And uh, it's a very different life to being a jockey, uh, especially up here. Like you, when you're a jockey up here, you go to work. The track doesn't actually open. The, the tracks to work on don't open till 6. Mm-hmm. So when you're a jockey, you just lob up at 5 to 6 and then you're usually gone by 9 and, and the rest of you, you've got the rest of your day to play do whatever golf. you want. Mm. So play golf, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's very different life to being a jockey. But as I said at the start of the interview, it's something that I've really enjoyed getting back to being hands-on with the horses. Because at the end of the day, that's why we all do it. We we love the animal, and it's and it's um, they give have give me so much in my career. It's good to be able to give a little bit back to them in just taking care of them and um, yeah, looking after them. 
Just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back in a moment. 2020 English Classic Sale gets underway on Sunday, February the 9th, with a catalogue comprising 808 yearlings, 613 in Book 1, 195 in the Highway Session. Book 1 will be sold on the Sunday, Monday and part of Tuesday with the Highway Session following immediately after. 103 stallions will have progeny in the sale with 31 first season sires represented. 734 yearlings are Bob's eligible. Classic sale graduates in recent years include Vow and Declare, She Will Reign, Castel Vecchio, Shadow Hero, Samadout and Yankee Rose. It's a world-class sale at a world-class venue. The 2020 English Classic Sale commencing Sunday, February the 9th at 10 o'clock. You were born in Albury. You moved to Wagga at age three. And when you were about five or six, you'd go to the races in the Riverina with your dad, Bob, who was a very successful country jockey. Now, you were obsessed with following in his footsteps, even after he had the fall that ended his career. He sustained a very complicated leg break. He could never get it right again, could he? No, that's right, John. Yeah, he had a bad fall at Wagga. Um, and, yeah, it was... Uh, I- I think they call him like a compound fracture where, yeah. well, actually the bone come out of the, out this, out the leg. Yeah, compound, and, um, yeah. Yeah, that, he is a terrible injury. And yeah, he just could, he would have loved to have rode again. It, it really, it was very hard on him because that was, as me, like he left school, he left school probably 13 or 14 back in those days. And um, that's all he ever done was ride horses. He was apprenticed to the famous uh, Bert Arnie. Bert mm-hmm. Honeychurch, and and he just loved riding, so it was very hard on him at the time. And um, uh, yeah, he would have loved to get back, but um, yeah, he, he could never get the doctors to to, to pass him off um, mm. on a on a medical. So unfortunately, he had to uh, give it away and um, retire from the saddle. And yeah, but that, as as you said, John, that never dented my enthusiasm. It, from I, I can't just I can't even remember wanting to do anything else from from mm. any any time in my life. It was always just going to be a jockey. So mm. uh, yeah, as soon as Mum and Dad made me go to school, finish my Year Ten certificate. Um, but yeah, I it, I couldn't get out of school quick enough. No, to, I'm going to say they to made you go kicking and thrashing. Correct. Yeah, I was <laughs> I wasn't too bad at school, but it was quite. Um, uh, funny to see my grades as they went on in on in the years when I, I started at high school and it used to be um, the highest class was uh, year was point seven like it started in year seven and year seven one and then it went down to two three and four well, in year seven I was in one by year ten I was down to four so mm. you could see my concentration and my studies were. <laughs> Were other in other places. Yeah, quite erratic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the only study and I done in Year Ten was the form guide. Yeah, sportsman probably in that era. <laughs> yes, correct, correct. Now, Danny, your dad has just turned seventy, and he only recently retired. But boredom must have set in because you tell me he's yeah. back working for a shearer. What's he doing? Yeah, yeah, he's um, yeah, he retired in. Uh, 
<coughs> October and the last couple of the uh, last few years dad he's um he always stayed in racing after after riding but then mm. the last few years he sort of slowed down a bit and um he was working in the bottle sh- in a bottle shop driving mm. bottle shop and um and that was a great job for him because he's very social and you go with the, back to Wagga and everybody knows him and um yeah so he retired in October, but uh, yeah, he could. He's one of those guys. He's up at as soon as the sun comes up, and he couldn't sit still. And I rang him one day, and and uh, he said, oh, "I got to go." He said, oh, "I'm off," and I said, "What are you doing?" He said, oh, "I got a new job," mm. and I said, "Yeah, what are you doing?" Uh, he said, oh, "I'm rouseabouting," and for anyone who knows, rouseabouting is probably yeah. one of the, yeah one of the hardest jobs you can do. You're putting sheep in yards and. She, uh, sweeping the floors and and uh, yeah, in the shearing shed and those old shearing sheds they they get pretty hot. So mm. yeah, he's gone from uh, from the stove to the fire, I reckon. But uh, he loves it. He he loves getting out there and he just loves to be active. So no, he's going good, Dad. He's mm. getting well and very lucky. Mum's mum's in her <coughs> excuse me, in her last year of uh before she can retire and she's mm. a nurse and she's nursed uh for well, all her life and um she's a nurse at the uh, Kapuka Navy uh, army base, sorry, mm. at Wagga and um she's been there for a long time. So mm. uh yeah, they're we I'm very lucky they're both fitting well. Dan, you've got two sisters, Renee and Amy, and one brother yep. Sam who thought he might have a little crack at the riding caper at one stage, but it didn't last long. Yeah, yeah, he um, he had a bit, he had a go. He um, was going down and riding a bit of track work for Trevor Sutherland at Wagga, mm. and um, he was all excited. He had his, he was lined up his first gallop, and um, unfortunately, he retired after that first gallop. So we we don't know what happened whether the horse took off or the yeah. or it was a bit quick for him. We we've we've just let it lie, but yeah, yeah. that was his career. Yeah. You, th- you think he got a fright of some kind? <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah, he mightn't have been too fond too fond of the speed element, maybe. Mm, but he won't admit it. No, well, we we haven't we haven't asked him, so it just we're waiting for him to come and tell us one day. <laughs> <laughs> You were apprenticed initially, as we said in the introduction, to Peter Maher at Wodonga. But a bit later, your indentures were transferred to Lee Friedman at Flemington at a time when the Friedmans were absolutely flying. Now, just give me the names of some of the horses they had in work at the time. Yeah, it was amazing. Like the word, well, the who's who, as you said, John Noah. Absolutely at the top of their game in those days, and I lived at um, the Flemington stable. I was only there for three months, mm. and um, but out in the backyard, like the state, the house was at the the front, and the stables were out the back. But you had yeah, had horses like Dan Zero and Paris Lane, and mm. um, or one horse I remember because he was a bit of a bugger was that big English stallion Runyon, and he Runyon, was a, yeah, he's a bit of a yeah, he's a he's a good horse, but he was a bit of a handful. Mm. Um, but yeah, geez, we had they had just I think there was about fifteen or twenty boxes out the back there, and and they were all Group One winners. It was Good it was me. amazing. Another one was yeah. Poetic King, and you took a real liking to him. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. But Poetic King was there, and and he was um, yeah, he was he was only a little fella, 
But he was just a, he was such a lovely horse. I remember him so well, and he had just the best nature. He's a beautiful little ride, and um, and he's very quiet. And and I think everyone took a liking to him. But I used to look after him in that that short time I was there, and and um, yeah, you get to ride him most mornings, and and like he, he ends up. He was a Group One winner. I, th- I think Simon Marshall might have won. Yes, he did. Like uh, that mm. that fourteen hundred at Caulfield. The, I think it might have been the old Big Health Cup or something the, like yeah, that. Yeah, the but, Big um, Health. I, I think initially it was the. Uh, it had another name way back. Yeah, it would have had it would have had uh, probably about ten different names. Yeah, I just I can't think of the, <laughs> the one I had in mind, but. Um, but yeah, he's a very good little horse. And but as I said, John, every box was filled with, filled with a Group One winner. It was quite amazing. Now we've mentioned Lee Friedman. It's well documented, Danny, that he's in Singapore, and he's been training there uh, for quite a while now. In fact, he was top trainer last season. Do you see a bit of him at the track? Yeah, you do. You do. Lee's, Lee's come up here and done well. This will be his third season. He uh, he actually won the the premiership in his first season mm. and uh, his first full season. Sorry, yeah. Um, and then then last year he was a little bit quiet on the number of winners, but then he still came out and won our two biggest races. He won the Derby and the and the Singapore Gold Cup. Um, and he's come out the the gates flying this year. I think he's trained about four or five winners already this year. So mm. yeah, you you see Lee. He's, um, Oh, he slowed up a bit, but he's still got his wonderful eye, and um, and obviously he's a Hall of Fame trainer, so um, mm. he's uh, got a lot of experience and a lot of uh, knowledge on, on most of the guys up here, and um, you, you see that come to the fore when when he steps them out. Yeah, mm. you had a few race rides for Lee during your three months tenure. Uh, but David Hayes had his stables nearby, walking distance really, and he gave you a number of rides in that period. You had a pretty good trot on the Hayes horses at that time. I, yeah, I did. I had a little bit of a, a head start there in that um, Gary Fennessy, who's who's been Hayes' long-time foreman in Melbourne, um, he knew my family, my, my auntie Sue, Worked for Hazes, and she actually strapped so called when it won the Cox Plate. Mm. And um, so Gary, uh, he sort of knew knew me and knew my family. So, and he obviously watched me ride a little bit, and so he gave me a bit of a push there. And Hazes were very good; they gave me a lot of opportunities, and I was very lucky. They they sort of got my metropolitan career going because I, I rode. They were probably the first ones to give me a really good go. Mm. In Melbourne, and I wrote quite a few winners for him. And um, I reckon that t- the, one of the turning points where I really got going was that Angus Armanasco put me on a filly at Sandown one day, Tempest Morn, mm. and she won. And that was when sort of probably people really um, took notice of me. And then I was a- away and going then, and then mm. I would ride at most of most metropolitan meetings. Mm. Um, Tempest Morn then, is that the filly that went to Gay Waterhouse later? Oh, sorry, not Tempest Morn. Uh, Tennessee Morn. Tennessee Morn. Tennessee Morn. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it wasn't Tempest. Yeah, Tennessee mm. Morn. Now that would have been a real experience uh, for a young jockey to meet uh, the great, the legendary Angus Armanasco, who'd put the polish on so many champions. Yeah, d- um, yeah, amazing. Like it's 
when you were a kid, and as I, as I said, like uh, early in the interview, the racing was all my was just my life from the day I can remember. So um, I just you just read and watched and seen all these legendary trainers and jockeys, and when I finally uh, got to become a jockey and had the opportunity to ride for these trainers or uh, ride against these jockeys, it was yeah, it was just like. My dreams, every dream I ever had was coming true. It was just, it was amazing. A certain Sydney trainer had been monitoring your progress for quite a while and suddenly he appeared in your life. Now, when your short-term agreement with Freedman's terminated, you went back to Peter Maher for a while at Madonga, uh, Wodonga, but you were still getting offers to ride in Melbourne on Wednesdays and Saturdays, so you were travelling quite a bit for a while. But Graham Begg uh, was aware of your progress and aware of the ability you, you were showing. And one day, out of the blue, he contacted you to ride two horses for him at a Rose Hill Saturday meeting. I'll never forget it. 30th of April, 1995. They were both mares. Their names were Ramouche and Baldine, and they both won. Yeah, yeah. It, actually, that was that was before I went to Friedman's. Oh, was it? Um, yep. Yeah, it it, it, it was um, it was I think about a week or two weeks actually before I was due to to go and start my three month uh, loan with Lee. Mm-hmm. And as you say, Graham, he was uh, obviously watching me maybe on the more around the country areas, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure. I think someone might have uh, pointed me out to him. I can't. I can't remember the story quite, quite well. But uh, you're right. I, I went down, um, flew to flew to Sydney first. First time I'd ever been on a plane. Good. And yeah. Um, yeah, I was a bit nervous getting on the plane, and um, flew to Sydney. And Carmel Beg picked me up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Carmel Size, sorry. And yeah. um, now and. Um, yeah, Carmel picked me up, and uh, I had, had a yeah, great weekend. It was like it was quite a, like quite mind blowing to think back of it. I go to Rose Hill, a kid from the bush, and jumped on two, as you said, two mares. And Ramush was a she was a pretty good mare. She was a quality mm. mare, and um, she had a good career. And uh, yeah, she won. And then Beldine was later in the day, and um, she won. So I had the two rides for two winners. Yeah, fairy tale um, stuff. I, Fairy tale, yeah, mm. definitely, John. Fairy tale stuff you could you couldn't make up. So, um, yeah, then I went back to Wodonga, and then I went to Lee's for the three months. Then when I came back, mm. um, Graham was aware that I come back to Wodonga, and he was pretty keen to get me up to Sydney. And and that's when I I went to Sydney and mm. and um, stayed. And, and Graham was a great boss. There, there wasn't too many horses that didn't run that he didn't put me on, you know. So mm-hmm. and I had wonderful opportunities there. And you spent the last two years of your apprenticeship with Graham. That's correct. That's correct, yeah. At the end of that apprenticeship, as a reward for your diligent service, Graham sent you to Hong Kong with Monopolize for the Hong Kong Bowl. Uh, the horse had won the same race the previous year with Wayne Harris on board. Now, you tell me it was a very exciting couple of weeks what was the plan? You were to write him all of his work. Yeah, that's that's right. 
it, when he was in um, Sydney, he, he's a bit of a bit of an old bugger. He was a pretty hard pulling horse. And Nolly Smith, he used to ride him every morning, and uh, he got on terrifically well. Um, but as you said, Graham uh, said said that I, I could go and ride him work, and um, and because I, I knew him pretty well, I'd like if Noel wasn't there one morning, I, I'd ride him. So I, I did get I did know him pretty well, and um, yeah, Graham just thought it would be a, a an asset for the horse if someone could ride him every morning that knew him. So he took me over. Uh, with him and you know, I rode him work every morning and it was a great experience in that also Graham teed up for me because um, Neville was was um, I think Neville was still training or maybe just winding down mm. over there but um, Graham had teed up with me with David Hayes for me to ride track work uh, for him so every morning I'd go to Chartin and I'd ride a couple for David early in the morning, then go over to the quarantine and, and ride Monopolise yeah. um, work. So it was, yeah, it was was like as from a, for a kid growing up out of from Wagga mm. and only been from Melbourne to Sydney and then all of a sudden you're spending two weeks yeah. in Hong Kong. Or talk about a rabbit in, in the headlights. So I was like, it was... <laughs> <laughs> Exciting stuff. Yeah, very exciting, very exciting, and especially that week, the who's who of racing was there. That all the great trainers from around the world, and mm. and um, all the great jockeys, and even to the point that I think that back in those days there was more international uh, influence there. In that, um, you see the fields these days; it's very heavy with the Hong Kong horses and and just a few. Um, Europeans, um, you don't get too many Australians going over, but it was very, yeah. it was a big thing then. Like there was, I reckon there was probably twelve or fifteen horses from Australia and New Zealand there, mm. and um, and then the, the Japanese and the Europeans, and it were very, very international races. So it was was a really exciting time. Mm. You saw several jockeys in Hong Kong who were exponents of the European style of riding. It uh, really impressed you it had quite an impact on you and I can remember uh, back in Sydney you suddenly adopted that style toe in pumping action a minimum of whip and I remember everybody was talking about the new Danny Beasley and you were riding plenty of winners yeah well when I first started I was I had plenty of critics but when I started riding the winners those critics Disappeared. Uh, disappeared, yeah. So um, I just uh, could see it was very effective. And um, when they, they the when you have your toes in your eyes, you get your centre of balance um, better and you can get your weight more forward to the across the pommel of the saddle, which is on top of the wiver of the horse. So it's a lot easier for them to carry the weight. And, uh, um, yeah, as we've seen over the years, with more the European riders coming to Australia and you see uh, the likes of Joe Marrera, um, you can see how that style is so effective of just keeping the horse balanced. And they one thing where a lot of, we get it wrong a lot, where um, a lot of people people think horses are a lot of ingenuine, but I really think it's the human element that makes them ingenuine. Yeah, yeah. And if they're happy and um, 
and sound and you'd think the horses are amazing animals, they'll run through brick walls for you. Mm. So um, I don't think they really need um, the, like, Real whacking with the whips and things like that. I'm, just, I'm, 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 I'm not against, I'm against the banning of the whips. I, I think they're a, a necessary tool, but I, I've never been a fan of really that that uh, really uh, overexertion of the whips. I, I think there's places, especially in Australia at the moment, with the time the times change. There's definitely needs to be looked at the whip rules. I think the the whips um, needs to be limited, probably a little bit more. Um, and but I don't think it will change our racing. I think it can be used less, and still we can still have the same level of racing. Mm. For sure. Well, Dan, we'll pause after segment one, and when we come back for the second part of our interview, we're going to talk about your very first Group One winner. Back shortly for segment two with Danny Beasley. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. 